Hello, and welcome back to KGEN's What the Health. I'm your host, Sarah Jane Tribble, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News, filling in for Julie Rovner, who is taking a well-deserved short break. She'll be back next week. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping Thursday morning this week on April 19th. And as with all news in Washington, things can change fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hello. Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. And Paige Winfield-Cunningham of the Washington Post. Hi, Sarah. Hi. It's good to have you guys here. Thanks for coming. Um, This week, we're going to cast a wide net and talk about everything from state proposals on Medicaid, drug pricing, and even some federal happenings out there. To begin with, Paige, you wrote a great story this week about how, for the first time in nearly a decade, the Republicans on the campaign trail aren't talking about repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. As you point out, the repeal and replace mantra was a mainstay in Republican campaigns for four straight elections since the GOP won the House majority in 2010. So what does this mean for the midterms going forward and for the Democrats? Right. Well, I had a lot of fun writing this story because in a way I felt like it kind of also reflected my health policy reporting career, which started right after the passage of the of the 2010 health care law. And so for me as well, this is a really different election cycle where Republicans are finding that health care is not their top talking point anymore. They are some of the party organizations are trying to target some vulnerable Democrats um, over their support of a more uh, public option or single payer system, and they think they can gain some traction there. But we're seeing a real shift in ad spending by the party. So if you look back, um, you know, over the last couple election cycles, um, Republicans were vastly overspending Democrats in terms of ads on health care and the things that they were trying to talk about targeting the the ACA. And it seemed like something Democrats were really trying to run away from. And I think we could see a real reversal this year. Um, When I reached out to the House and Senate party organizations, um, they were both extremely enthusiastic to talk about health care. They told me they saw this as possibly their top issue this year and something that they can really win on. Um, and, you know, they and, and you've also kind of seen this reflect. I know we'll talk about this later, but on Capitol Hill, where you see all of these bills coming out, pushing for a further expansion of of Medicare. And so, you know, when you look at polls, um, the American public actually, by a slight majority, favors more government involvement in health care, which is, of course, the opposite direction than Republicans are trying to take it. So I think Democrats really see the winds kind of shifting in their direction now. Um, and then, of course, the other thing that they they can really talk about this year is the deeply unpopular uh, Republican repeal and replace bills last mm-hmm. year. So a lot in a lot of the ads um, targeting vulnerable vulnerable Republicans who voted for these bills, um, Democrats are really seizing on you know how these bills would have rolled back Medicaid, um, would have allowed seniors to be charged more for for premiums, or how some of the protections for pre existing conditions would have been rolled back under some 
some of this legislation. So, um, yeah, so it was really um, it was like a story I'd been thinking about for for a long time um, and one that kind of just needed to be written. I know a lot of us were kind of kind of noticing that. But, um, you know, so I think I think like this is really the first election in like a decade where we're going to see a real shift on that messaging. It's an interesting timing um, thing because I hadn't put it together. I mean, certainly we had heard the Republicans talking about repeal and replace less. We'd certainly seen shifts. I love how in your story you point out the web pages have changed and you look right. <laughs> yeah, I noticed like a couple of House Republicans, and I'm sure there are many more of them where, you know, you would like go to their campaign website or listen to what they were saying on the campaign trail. And of course, repeal and replace was that top message and that top promise. And this year, they generally are only speaking about it if they're asked about it. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, like one of the things that they, they obviously still can talk about is they did take some smaller steps to roll back the ACA. And um, when I asked a couple of GOP consultants kind of how would you advise candidates to talk about this, they said, well, we can still point to the tax overhaul and how we repealed the unpopular individual mandate to buy coverage. We can talk about the actions that the Trump administration is taking to expand access to plans that are exempt from a lot of these coverage requirements. Um, so but the other, I guess the other thing is like that's notable is I don't think there's even a consensus among Republicans about exactly what their message should be. So I caught up with Ted Cruz and I was like, so, you know, I mean, he's still been talking about repeal, replace. And he still says that is his agenda. And that's what he wants to be talking about. Um, That's really uh, it's surprising to me that he hasn't shifted. I guess it shouldn't be surprising. Well, I, I, th- I really liked Paige's article. I thought it was really good. But I, I think that we're still six or seven months out, and I don't think health care is going to go away. So I think that Republicans are going to figure out how to talk about it. And they're not going to talk about it in the same repeal and replace way, because clearly they did not repeal and replace it. And they just sort of look silly saying they're going to. But there are a couple of things. They can talk. And we saw the president do this as soon as the tax bill passed, the tax law at that point passed. Um, he was saying, oh, it's basically repealed because we've got rid of the mandate. Uh, the Democrats are vulnerable on cost. Republicans can still say, oh, you know, this. we're going to still keep working on fixing. I mean, there's there's ads going up. To, just this morning, I got an email. There's a half a million dollar of ads going up from Americans for Prosperity against uh, Senator Tester on the cost of health care and how he didn't fix Obamacare. So I think they've got the cost issue that the Republicans will talk about. I think they'll talk about, well, we've made it. You know, we've, we've, we've changed Obamacare. We got rid of the mandate. We're giving you alternatives, these short-term plans, right. these AHPs. I think they're going to talk about how they've made Obamacare sort of optional and they've created a more affordable alternatives. So, And remember that Obamacare is still really important to the Republican base. So I, I, do, I think I, I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with Paige's story. I thought it was, mm-hmm. I thought it was a great story. But um, I, just, I think that we're in a process of their figuring out how to talk about it, how to campaign on it, how to reach their base with new language. But I don't think it's going to go away completely. And then the Democrats also risk... Um, Going, to, you know, they they have this balance where the progressive, more progressive part of the party wants to go towards single payer. Some other people are sort of trying to talk about these various Medicare buy-in options, which is a and the right. Democrats have to be careful that they don't get into a civil war over this, and that they don't give the Republicans a new opening to talk about massive government-run health care. Right. If they start going too far forward on the Medicare, well, I think I read last they're night, Part they're, e. Yeah, they're <laughs> trying to, um, the, it, you know, we've talked about it before, the Democrats are trying to figure out how to have a unified message that, message that ha- makes everybody happy and doesn't scare anybody. But it, it is interesting how the Republicans do seem to be, they've had plenty of time 
to anticipate that they may not be able to, you know, go out and campaign on repeal and replace, and yet they still seem to be struggling to fill that hole. Well, um, cost. I mean, I I think they can they can compete. I mean, remember the elections are going to be right as the prices come out for next year. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the enrollment is what October first, still November first again next year, right? Mm -hmm. The 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 cost of I mean Trump really hit on that like the last ten days of the election and it helped him win so I think you'll hear uh, but I think I, I'm not sure all of them like realize that they should move to that because like Dean Heller's comments I think were pretty telling like a couple weeks yeah. ago he was talking to a Republican club and he basically kind of continued that message of if you just give us more Senate seats then we'll finally be able to do this he said well we just need two or three more seats which is probably true but that's kind of the message they've told voters all along like elect enough of us and we'll do this and then voters did and it still didn't happen so I mean they could convince the voters are chipping away at it right the individual mandate now we've got the association health plan and they can say elect more of us we will continue making Obama you know giving you alternatives more affordable alternatives that's what they can we're the more benevolent that's a Republican (laughs) message they can do and look at how much you know your premiums have gone up. I mean, yeah, we all know a lot of it's subsidized and it's not as clear cut. And we all know that bringing down the cost of premiums doesn't mean you're bringing down the cost of care. But it's a it's a good catchy bumper sticker. Yeah. So I absolutely agree with Joanne that this is not gone and that it, it almost certainly will come back when these rates come out in the fall, if not before then. But I do feel like I've been paying a lot of attention to the debate on the left. There was this new Medicare expansion bill that was brought forward by uh, Senator Murphy and Senator Merkley this week. And it just occurs to me that healthcare is really important to both parties. And they are, both parties are trying to crystallize what their message is going to be about healthcare. And we see in the public polling, healthcare remains really important to voters. So clearly, that is going to be part of our politics. But I almost feel like we're starting to move into a post-Obamacare phase of this debate where the Democrats are not trying to explain and defend Obamacare. They're talking about where do we go next? How do we make the system better? Not how do we make Obamacare better, but how do we make the healthcare system better? And I think the Republicans, to some degree, are kind of in that same area where they don't like Obamacare, they're looking for workarounds, but because they couldn't repeal it, it starts to just feel like the fabric of how the healthcare system works. So then it's like, what are these other options we can provide? Could we do these association health plans? Can mm-hmm. we do other things? Can we do things on cost? Can we make reforms to Medicare? And while I do think that Obamacare is going to sort of bubble up, I, I think that both parties are probably starting to move on, and we're going to see the debate be a little bit more about health care and a little bit less about Obamacare. And I could be totally wrong about this. And, and, and the reason that I think this is that I have felt this way after almost every election. So I felt like 2012, like that was the last election where you really could repeal Obamacare before its major provisions went into effect. And that was, you know, at least in my lifetime, like the biggest health care election that I can remember, where both parties were having a really vigorous, active debate about both Medicare and Obamacare. And it felt like this is the last chance. You know, you have to elect Republicans to stop Obamacare before it starts. And I remember after the election, John Boehner came out and he said, Obamacare is the law of the land. We're going to move on. But that they, was the, end yeah, of John, the beginning of the end of John right, Boehner. But like he yeah. was wrong. It, it, it continued to be this rallying cry. And then we saw in 2014, Obamacare was still this huge and important issue for Republicans, I think in part because the launch was sort of disastrous. And they said, like, do you want this horrible thing? No, Mm -hmm. like we can fix it before it gets too established. And then, you know, it was, I think, to a lesser degree in 2016, but still was pretty important. And now the Republicans control the government. They tried to repeal Obamacare. They realized they didn't have the votes to do it. 
And I'm starting to feel like maybe now there's just a recognition like this is the law of the land. It's like deeply entwined in the way that the healthcare system works. The Medicare reforms, they've stopped talking about changing any of those, which, you know, we remember that that was part of the repeal cry early on. You know, in the 2012 Mm -hmm. election, there was a lot of discussion about how Obamacare was taking money away from seniors. We don't hear those lines anymore. And yeah, but I would say, though, that that messaging um, around Obamacare being negative from the Republicans is is also deeply seated across the U.S. So if you go to the base, if you go to, you know, the Midwest and so forth, you'll hear, you know, Obamacare talked about with chagrin. Like they really yeah. hate it. They really believe it is the root of all evil. A lot and of folks all, out the there. The other thing is all, all four of us know every time we think that the country's ready to move on, we're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's changed. I, I, I agree with everything everybody has said, but I don't think we're contradicting each other. But um you know, it, we change. We are hearing Republicans trying to figure out how to talk about it in the future, but it never really goes away. I mean, it's we're going to be fighting about this for you know. It, it, it'll have a different intensity. I mean, we're still funding my Medicare. We're still yeah. funding about you know, fifty years later. So, um, the you know, the Medicare. But I think what subsided we for a whole about, lot of reasons, but I when mean, we Trump talk didn't about want to Obamacare, is getting narrower and narrower. So it used to be we're going to repeal the entire bill, every single thing that it did, uh, and then it was sort of. The coverage expansion, some of the taxes, and now I feel like the tax box has probably been largely checked. The taxes that the Republicans hated the most are gone. Uh, so now we're sort of talking about the coverage expansion, but not so much Medicaid anymore, right? Because people are realizing. So it's really that like Medicaid... now it's just like the individual market. But and they got rid of the mandate and the IPABs, mm-hmm. and those were two of their favorite. But they'll find. I mean, bags. right? They'll find another yeah. death panel in there. <laughs> there's still PCORI. <laughs> like, they have to explain what PCORI is, but there's other death panels. There's dozens of death panels. Right? Whenever we start talking about this, I, I think of a interview I had with T.R. Reid um, about five years ago. He did this documentary where he went to all the other countries and looked at their health care. And, um, and then he came back and said, hey, you know what? We really need full-on coverage across the U.S. And I sat down afterwards after this kind of formal interview with him. I was like, well, what do you think will really happen? What do you think? And he said, well, we'll either see Medicaid expand upwards to cover everybody in about 50 years or 20 years. I don't remember the exact time frame he said. Or we'll see Medicare go downwards. And um, and so when you see the proposals, and there's been many of them over the years from um, like Murphy and Merkley, um, it's not surprising that it's out there. But you tweeted about it last night. You even said, you know, maybe the public option's not dead. So I wanted to ask you about that, Margo. And uh, Paige, I think you wrote a story this morning about this, right? So... Yeah, I think this proposal is really interesting. First of all, I think it's important to understand it in context. And the context is that we're seeing a lot of different ideas coming out of the left about how to improve universal coverage and largely how to do it by expanding public programs. So there are several bills now that want to expand Medicare to cover more people. And there's one bill out of the Senate that would like to expand Medicaid to cover more people. Uh, So there are differences between all of them. What this one would do is it would essentially allow people to buy into the Medicare program. And unlike some of the other proposals, this option would be available for people in the individual insurance market. So if you're like an Obamacare customer, you could buy an Obamacare plan or you could buy Medicare instead. Uh, it would also be available to small businesses and businesses that are fully insured. Um, yeah, that are fully insured, they could say, "I want to buy my insurance from like Aetna or Cigna, or I want to buy Medicare uh, for my employees." That would be an option for them. 
And then the thing that they had that I've never really seen before is they would allow self-insured employers, so these are employers that pay their own health care bills for their workers, to basically use Medicare to administer their benefits. So Medicare would arrange the network and the payment rates and the coverage policies, and the self-insured employers would still pay the medical bills, but Medicare would sort of be a contractor that they could hire in the way that many of them hire insurance companies. And the way that uh, Senator Murphy in particular described this is, I think that he said, I think if you give people a choice between Medicare and private insurance, my bet is that most people are going to take Medicare, that Medicare is a great program, that it's really popular, that it's really cost effective. But we don't want to force anyone to do it. And so this is a way to expand Medicare without taking away people's choice and autonomy and also providing some escape valve that if we're wrong and people really love their private insurance or if an expanded Medicare is a disaster and it doesn't do a good job, it's not competitive in some way, that there would be other options for people. So I don't know. I mean, I think the, the bill does some other things, too. It, it would expand Obamacare subsidies, higher up the income scale, and also would expand the generosity of those subsidies. So they would buy people insurance with lower deductibles on average. Um, that won't go anywhere then, right? And it would also. So this is also a, a significant increase of the subsidies. What they claim is that they can pay for this expansion of subsidies by allowing Medicare to negotiate for drug prices. So the idea is like they're going to achieve all the, they're going to sort of socialize drug purchasing for Medicare and Medicare is going to be buying for a larger group. And then because they're going to save so much money by doing that, they're going to apply those savings to expanding subsidies for people who don't get insurance through work. So there's no CBO score on this. Who knows if those things are even close to being equal, but that's sort of the theory of the case. It strikes me as pretty smart messaging that they're talking about this in terms of expanding Medicare because Americans are very familiar familiar with Medicare. We've had it for decades. All of us have grandparents that have been on Medicare. My grandparents talked to me about how they are really pretty happy with their coverage. I think uh, Kaiser Poll found that six in 10 Americans think Medicare is generally working well for most people. Um, and so I think that's why when you see sort of this whole range of proposals, it it, it terms everything in, in Medi- Medicare terms, even though it is a range of like how how much access and and how many people would have access to a government plan. So I think like on obviously we have Sanders bill on one end of the spectrum mm-hmm. um uh which which would which would totally make make everything public but um there was like a bill from Kane and I forget the other senator and that's kind of on the other end of the spectrum where it would just offer this public option I think in the marketplaces and it would like very slowly phase in it wouldn't necessarily be for employers. So but kind of on that whole spectrum, I think, you know, it, the, there are differences between the bills. But I think Democrats all realize that this is a really popular program. And if they want to really sell this to the public, um, that this would be like a really effective way to and, and the kinds of words that they should use to talk to people about it. I think yeah. they did a really good job of figuring out, like Paige said, I mean, it's sort of if you want a public option, you've got a public option if you're a Democrat. If you want um, more choice there's more choice. If you want Medicare buy-in, there's medic. You know, the Medicare for all language is a is a popular phrase. So I thought politically, in terms of trying to have the Democrats being able to speak the same language in a non-threatening way, I thought it was really quite smart. Because you have all proposal, these t- titles, right? right? So yesterday's was choose Medicare. You have Medicare for all. You have Medicare X. Mm-hmm. You have Medicare Extra for all. Right. Um, I, I like Medicare yeah. Part E. I really do. I think, <laughs> but but it is. I mean, the, the price tag is probably going to be pretty high when CBO does look at it, and because yeah. um, they've been skeptical about the the drug savings, and you know, 
just never underestimate the ability of the other side to, to you know, attack it on cost or growth of government or squeezing it. You know, it'll, there'll be a fight. I mean, there always is. Yeah, um, I but I, I did think that the like the way they, the way they sort of packaged it and the way they split the differences was actually quite, um, you know, it was Democrats often don't do that. <laughs> so. I feel like the poli- that the. Details of this bill are really responsive to what we see in the public polling, which is people don't want to be forced into a government program. They don't like the idea of uh, single payer in general, or at least once you push them on the details of it. They seem to be a little bit more open to the idea of the option of joining a public program. But this has not been challenged in any way. And there are two major groups that I could see really raising a ruckus about this kind of bill, even if the costs all work. Imagine for, Mm -hmm. you know, imagine just that. The, the math is magical. Um, first of all, all of the healthcare providers are going to hate this bill. Um, Medicare, the reason why, the largest reason why it tends to be cheaper than private insurance is because it pays less. It's not true in every case, but in general, it pays less to hospitals, less to doctors, less to device makers. This bill would also mean they would pay less to pharmaceutical companies. So all of those parties would be up in arms. And 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 some of them, I think, you know, especially certain hospitals, I think it, it could be a real hit to their bottom line. So it wouldn't be just entirely crying wolf. Right. And unlike expanding Medicaid, when you say that, the hospitals are saying, well, we're going to get paid for people who aren't paying right now. This would be taking away money because you're taking away the private insurance and putting them on Medicare. It depends what it does overall. I mean, I agree with Marga, but it's also if it covers people who are currently uninsured, if it brings more people in the system, the providers... But the providers True. are very worried about the expansion of anything, you know, government run, but and 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 cost and, and price setting. But there may be a pushback on that. I, I agree that they'll. But the nature of this, as I understand it, is that the premiums are actually supposed to be related to the cost of providing insurance to the population. So if a small business, for example, decides they want to buy this new Medicare program, Medicare Part E, instead of buying insurance from their current provider, they're not like. They're not going to get a discount on it. They have to pay the actual cost of Medicare. And so if Medicare is still cheaper, they're going to switch. I mean, it, I, right. I think that uh, the theory of this bill is that by providing a public program as an option, that more and more Americans will slowly migrate towards it. And that means that more and more paying customers of the medical profession are going to slowly migrate towards Medicare. And that means that they're probably going to have to absorb lower pay rates. The sponsors of the bill say, you know, the Medicare rates for this population are going to have to adjust if they get too low and there aren't enough takers, then like Medicare is going to have to do something about that. But I think that's something that the health uh, industries are going to really care about and and pharma in particular, because this is a totally different way of dealing with Medicare drug pricing. The other group that I think could easily be mobilized against a bill like this actually is seniors, because I think even though Medicare is this really popular program, in some ways that makes the people who have it very concerned about it and very protective of anything that might threaten their coverage. There's a view, even though taxpayers massively subsidize the cost of providing Medicare benefits to seniors, there's a view by most Americans that they have paid into the system for their whole lives by paying taxes and on their payroll throughout their careers, and they pay premiums every year to get Medicare, and they don't want, like, you know, these hordes of new people coming in and maybe taking resources away from the program, making it harder for them to see a doctor, making their premiums right. more expensive or whatever. And, while and that's all... part of what the Obamacare messaging actually was that we just talked about in 2012, mm-hmm. is there was a view that the Democrats were stealing resources from Medicare in order to provide health insurance to new people. So I could see a message like that 
uh, being a powerful argument against this bill, yeah. regardless of whether there is a lot of merit to it. And seniors vote. Yeah. And also, Medicare is not one thing, right? I mean, I'm not sure how all the pieces come together for this plan, right? You have Medicare A, I mean, you have Medicare A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. You have um, <clears throat> people who are Medicare Advantage, people who are in traditional fee-for-service Medicare, people have Medicare supplementals. Most people on Medicare right. do have some supplemental policies. So it's not like you know, are you going to go in the exchange and get Medicare and then have to get, you know, the bill yeah. would actually do away with out-of-pocket caps okay. for, um, or sorry, yeah. establish out-of-pocket caps for Medicare. Yeah. So that gets it even more expensive. Yeah. And so. what's interesting, though, is about what you're saying, Marco, and I, and I agree completely that um, people are very protective of their Medicare. I think they're getting more and more protective of it. And the polling does show it's a very popular program. But, you know, you talk to seniors and the drug prices are really hitting them hard. They think Medicare is not covering enough anymore. And then the, the idea of expanding it to more people and what if they have to spread out our, you know, our benefits a bit more. I, I, I can see some messaging. Yeah, and that, people like things until they see the deeds. I mean, like the polling that people say, we've had this every, I mean, it's always before there's a proposal on the table, people want it and then it gets torn apart. So, you know, when they see the specific in both and parties. And repeal and replace actually is like a great yeah. case study yeah. in that. Yeah. Or, or Obamacare. I mean, in, in, in like February of 2009, everybody wanted something like that. And then it became partisan about, you know, the details where it was expensive. It was big. It was complicated. People didn't understand it. It was under attack. People like things in the abstract until the political war starts. And then it, um, it always... You know, well, it, and the it, public yeah. didn't realize Obamacare was a big expansion of Medicaid. Then they yeah. then they sort of realized that repealing Obamacare meant rolling back Medicaid. But just one more thing that I would say is that I think everyone should be careful of branding the Democratic efforts to reform the health care system as being single payer. I think Bernie Sanders is a really charismatic figure, and he got out first with his bill. And his bill really is a true single payer bill where everyone goes to Medicare. But these other proposals that we're seeing, which share some features with his approach, really are not single payer. They are multi-payer plans where uh, the government plays a larger role where more people have government insurance, but where there would continue to be a private insurance system that exists alongside it. And that is actually more like what we see in European countries. So just just a nomenclature thing. This is different than single payer. It is a larger role for government, but it is sort of on the continuum of things that Obamacare did in the sense of expanding public programs and public subsidies for insurance. It is not taking away private insurance. That. Valid point, valid point. And of course, when we talk about Medicare, the other end of the um, government insurance is Medicaid. (laughs) And we've been seeing, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, Margo, you actually said um, that uh, it was very wise. You said we need to really look at the states when we watch the future of healthcare across the U.S. And, um, uh, you know, what is going to become of Obamacare, Medicaid across the U.S. I mean, I'm just going to look down at my notes and say this week we learned that Utah is one of three states where voters may try to go around their governors and legislators to expand Medicaid. Idaho and Nebraska also have campaigns. Um, you know, Maine voted to expand last year, but the governor has been blocking it. So what what are we seeing going forward? Uh, are we going to see more states? Uh, I, I think there's a number of them already out there, right? Well, the Utah has the sig- the ballot signatures. They have to be verified. It, they have a pretty good chance of getting something on the ballot. We don't know yet about the other two states. And then, you know, once these are conservative states, it's not clear that they'll all win. Um, and Maine, where it won big, I mean, in yeah. November, what was it, 60-something percent? I don't remember. But it was a big, it was not, it didn't scrape through. It was a popular proposal. Um, and the governor, who's um, leaving office next year, has just tooth and nail fought it. He's blocked it. That's going to probably end up in the courts. Um, or it'll just have to wait one more year until the page actually goes, although, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, I, I think that 
I think that the main, um, the lesson in Maine has been sort of, I mean, in, in November, everyone thought, okay, this is it. The page can't stop this. And he did. So I, I'm not sure if, you know, Idaho would actually right. uh, expand Medicaid or not when the the lawmakers are still in charge. You mean Utah uh, or am I missing one? No, <laughs> yeah, Idaho, I mean, Nebraska, and yeah. Utah. Yeah, I mean, like well, Idaho is the one that's trying to stop Obamacare. They're trying right. to you know do something totally different. Virginia may is you know because there was a Democratic wave there. The legislature's a lot closer. They may they may get Medicaid through. It's not definite, but they may get it through. And I mean, it's looking more. That's the most likely state. I think we would agree. And then, um, but it's, with work requirements, that was the compromise mm-hmm. to get the Republicans on board. It would probably have work requirements. And then there was a lot of talk about North Carolina, and that seems less. Um, after last year's election, there was talk about a compromise with work requirements in North Carolina, and that seems um, to not one have so that, much. One thing that struck oomph. me in, for, in Virginia um, was that. Again, like we were talking about earlier, a lot of this discussion has moved to health care costs. And so in, I think in the Virginia Senate, they have to get two Republicans on board to get the plan passed. And one of the demands that I think Senator Frank Wagner, a Republican, was making that he actually wanted to tack on an extra $250 subsidy for people, for earners between thirty dollars and $50,000, because that is – as you all know, like a group that has really struggled to afford coverage, um, you know, in the marketplaces because they haven't been eligible for the subsidies under the ACA. And that just kind of like struck me as interesting that it's a Republican that's demanding that we expand subsidies as a condition of him sign on signing on to Medicaid expansion. And maybe just another kind of like mini example of how Republicans are trying to turn that conversation to health care costs and really kind of position themselves as the party that's going to like win on that one. And Medicaid it was part of the message in the campaign in, in Virginia last year, yeah. both in the state, in the in both in the governor's race and in the the state lawmakers' races. I mean, Medicaid was a clear mm-hmm. wasn't a referenda the way the way Maine was, but it was a clear campaign issue. It was the election was a vote for Medicaid expansion, Thanks. but they didn't quite. The Democrats didn't. They, you know, what is it? One they're missing one seat. I mean, they're they're really close. They may do it. Um, I, I don't think it's a totally done deal. It's likely, but it's not certain. Virginia's come a long way because I remember when you live the former. There, right? Yeah, I do. And I used to cover Virginia state government. I think I was back when, uh, if you all remember Ken Cuccinelli, the former attorney general, was the first out of the gate. To, How could we forget? Right? To sue over right to sue over the ACA back in 2010. I think he filed his lawsuit like two days after they passed it, and then we we know how that kind of transpired. But and he lost his bid sure. for governor. And that was the identify, it was an identifying issue. And, and in a pretty a state that we thought of as pretty red, started becoming more blue-purple. And it was partly he, that, that race that he lost. I do think there's a tone difference of, about, around Medicaid right now, too, compared to five, six years ago. And we've talked about this before on here. Yeah, I, I feel like actually the repeal-replace debate maybe informs some of what we're seeing now. So Medicaid has always been pretty popular among the public, and so has Medicaid expansion, even in some of these states where we've seen kind of Republican political leaders dead set against it and really feeling like it's the wrong direction to go. Whenever there's been public polling in those states, you tend to see you've tended to see public support for Medicaid. But I think what the activists behind a lot of these ballot initiatives realized in the you know in the legislative debate that happened last year is that, you know, these medic people are not just sort of absently in favor of Medicaid expansion, but actually it's an issue where people can be mobilized and could be really politically activated. And so 
you know, these ballot initiatives, like you don't do a ballot initiative about things that people aren't really jazzed up, jazzed about mm-hmm. because there's always a ton of drift from the initial polling to when you get to election day because the other side gets to make their arguments. And most voters are not used to being legislators. So there's a strong bias against changing the law using a ballot initiative. The fact that we're seeing this groundswell of interest in trying to move Medicaid initiatives through the popular vote, I think is a sign that the activists see that people are not just in favor of this, but sort of strongly in favor of this and willing to come out and vote for it. But I think Maine is a really important cautionary tale. It's hard to enact this kind of like major policy change in a state without buy-in from either the legislature or the governor. And Maine's way more liberal than Utah. I mean, Maine's not a liberal state, but it's a sort of center state. And it's, it's, they have a liberal Republican, well, not LePage, but I mean, Susan Collins is from Maine. They have a tradition, Olympia Snow used to be the, uh, you know, another center. They're Mm -hmm. they're Republicans, they're sort of the handful of, the old Northeastern moderate Republicans are still in Maine. So if you look at Utah, Idaho, and Nebraska, they are all tougher cells than Maine, and Maine didn't do it yet. Although Utah does want to expand... Medicaid, they just want to expand it partially. So they do have this waiver request in with the federal government where they'd like to expand Medicaid up to the poverty line, but not all the way up to the Obamacare threshold, which is a little bit higher than the poverty line. So that seems like a state, even though it is quite a conservative state, where there seems to be some political consensus among Republicans that Medicaid expansion is not the end of the world. But mm-hmm. they've had plenty of chance. I mean, they've had years. They, they had their own reform proposal that predated. I mean, Utah was a state that looked very engaged with health reform. Like even in 2006, mm-hmm. 2007, 2008, they had all these commissions and they were going to do all these things. And, you know, Levitt had been governor and, you know, they never got there. So of those three, I think Utah's the most likely because they're sort of down this path. Do I think it's, you know, easy in Utah? No. Do I think Utah's easier than Nebraska or Idaho? Yes. But I don't think it's, particularly because we're really not sure that the the current administration is going to think partial expansion is legal. They have not let other states do that yet. The law, you know, there's there's some legal barriers there. But the administration has been kind of eager to do waivers. Uh, or But in- you can't mm. waive something that's actually totally in the, I mean, the waiver's, if if the if the ACA says Medicare Medicaid is el- you're eligible up to 133 percent of poverty, right. which is 138 in the real world, um, it's there's a fight about whether they can just waive that. You can't just make the law whether it has to be a legislative fix or a waiver fix. There's a, also, there's a fight going on about that. I think there's a real eagerness in CMS to grant waivers for existing Medicaid programs. So if you have a Medicaid program or you have a Medicaid expansion and you want to test out some new theory about how you're going to deliver benefits particularly if that theory involves work requirements, it seems like there's a real receptiveness Mm -hmm. to that. But if you want to expand Medicaid, you know, Seema Verma is on the record as saying that she thinks that the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare is at odds with the purpose of the Medicaid program. And so I do think that if you want to do something innovative that will enable you to expand Medicaid, that CMS is not going to view those kinds of waiver requests with the same kind of enthusiasm, which doesn't mean that they won't be approved. I think the people there, you know, are serious about their jobs and they're going to do the normal legal review that they would do. But the fact, I think it's like it's a little too simple to say they're excited about granting waivers. Waivers. I think yeah. they're excited about granting certain kinds of waivers. And one argument that I've heard from state officials and people who are advising them is that if what you really want to do is expand Medicaid, 
don't do it through a waiver. Just expand it the normal way where CMS can't say no, and then come back with a waiver request later. And if you have to wait a long time or negotiate on those details, you maybe could get it in later. But the sort of, it seems like the standard advice that's being given to states that want to expand now is not to do it this way, to just do it the straightforward way. Because CMS, I think, can sort of trip them up over these waiver requests because they're not excited about new expansions. Or Arizona. states can do it on in ways that other states have already got permission. Right. So if you want to do a waiver, um, and you know that Indiana got permission to do certain things, even under the Obama administration. Um, you know, you, you know, you can. It's easier to get something through that already exists than to push something where you can end up in court fighting about whether CMS has the authority to grant it. So, uh, either do a straight expansion, which the states haven't wanted to do, or do it with a known entity of of waivers. Like, right. okay, we know that they've approved work requirements. We know they've approved lockouts. We know they've approved co-pays for certain populations. So you can put together a, you know, Chinese menu of, you know, a little bit from Arizona, a little bit from Indiana and come up with your conservative waiver or expansion. Certainly profile. not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. I'm sure you guys will be writing about it uh, plenty in the coming months and, uh, and years probably. <laughs> um, speaking of states, just before we move on past the states, I want to uh, mention drug pricing since that's kind of my uh, love topic. Um, Maryland's drug price bill was struck down um, by a federal court last Friday, and we're hearing that it could have national implications. And, um, you know, this was a proposal that was inspired by Daraprim, the Martin Shkreli drug that went up 5,000%. And it was basically saying, if you're going to increase your prices, you need to report it to the state. Um, and lots of states have kind of tried to follow this. I think KHN's Shafali Luther had a story saying about 13 states are introducing something this year or planning to introduce something this year on drug pricing. So um, so who's going to win this battle? Do you think Colorado's going to get something through? We know um, some of these states, Vermont was first out of the gate with it. People haven't been terribly impressed. California had some numbers out when they um, published their list. Well, I think um, the transparency laws haven't been struck down in court, at least not yet. It's no. Maryland went further than transparency. Maryland, they called it a price gouging bill. Right. And you're, you're way more expert than any of us on the table, <laughs> so you should just talk about this. But basically, the court said Maryland's law had uh, impact outside of Maryland. That right. It, it violated, I think it was the Commerce Clause, right? Yeah. That it it it. It violates Maryland, the, right. the dormant commerce, commerce Clause because it directly regulates the price of transactions that occur outside of Maryland. Right. So they're basically saying that Maryland couldn't regulate national prices. That's what the, the court interpreted the Maryland law as being, having national impact outside of their state boundaries, outside of their state jurisdiction, and said, uh-uh. But the other laws that are just transparency laws yeah, those are, should are be. a little, I mean, they may not be very effective, but I, I have not read about a successful challenge to them? No, no, I but haven't. this is your beat, so tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard about a, a successful challenge to the transparency laws, but I do think that states are trying to come out and take more action saying, look, we don't want you know residents to be paying uh, too much price gouging. And I think many states were excited about what Maryland was proposing and watching them. And to see it struck down by a federal circuit court is uh, probably a bit disappointing. And I have a question. If I mean, it affected generic drugs. You may uh, yeah. you may not know the answer, but I mean, if you're if you're the Shkreli drug and you, you raise it five thousand percent, obviously, you know, the entire country said, "Excuse me," but like if a lot of generics cost like a buck, right, or right. fifty cents or five cents. So a fifty percent, like if a drug costs ten cents and they go up to fifteen, that's fifty percent increase. But are they do they get 
Is there a threshold of when you can get away with that? With you know, you're talking cents instead of thousands of dollars? I don't because know. Because the generic drug, the generic companies really hate these transparency mm-hmm. because a 10% is a penny for some of these drugs. Right, exactly. Yeah, so I don't know what... If it's based on right. percentage or if it's... I, I think if there's a threshold that yeah, it didn't exactly. apply under, I don't know. I, I think have not read the Maryland statute in it entirely. Yeah, I have, I have not either, actually. So anybody else at the table have read it? Uh, know the answer? Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> understand it if I read the whole thing, so... Okay. Well, um, in drug price news and drug news in general, there's a lot happening today um, on Capitol Hill. Both chambers of Congress have been pushing for action on um, this spring on opioids. Uh, The Senate Health Committee, uh, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, had uh, legislation out, I think, this week. Is that right? Um, and markup next yeah, week. Yeah, the markup right? next week. Next Tuesday, uh, I think. Yeah, it has 40 different proposals in it, so I'm not going to attempt to... Well, the of... House has 63, so... Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was... <laughs> I thought it was 21 in the help and more in the finance, but maybe it, I think it's a lot. It's just a lot, right? You, yeah, you and I talked about this um, last weekend at Association right. of Healthcare Journalists, and you guys, um, there's been lots written about opioids, and there's a lot of money already passed in the budget, um, and then these proposals are going to um, add to that? The, well, we don't know how much money is going to be in these yet. I don't think they've come up with the pay-fors, right? I mean, that's often at the end of this. What I had heard about the, at least the bill, I'm not so sure about the Senate uh, measures, but the ones proposed in energy and commerce is that they were essentially trying to come up with as much stuff as they could do on a really limited budget. Because um, at that point, they didn't know how much funding they were were going to get, I think, in the it's, omnibus yeah. w- when they were first coming up with the proposals, um, which is also kind of like the GOP style, is you're probably not going to see them pass some like big, really expensive program. Um, but Greg, Greg Walden insists that they're going to have something I think to the House floor by Memorial Day. That's the timeline he's put on it. So. Which we all know means July Fourth. <laughs> <laughs> but in time to campaign on next year. I mean, um, any party person out there campaigning, if they can campaign on getting something done on opioids, that's some of the proposals gonna... don't cost money. Like there's there's um, the, for, to prescribe the drug Suboxone. Oh, buprenorphine. I'm not going to say at night. Buprenorphine. Yeah. Um, the, the, the medications that's the treatment, doctors need special training. They need to be licensed, and there are limits on the number of patients they can have. So to raise that limit or to allow nurse practitioners right. to, do, to do more than they're doing, and they're allowed to do it now, but I think it's a pilot to make that permanent. So some of these things about prescribers, um, letting more people prescribe to more patients, that doesn't cost the federal government much at all. I mean, maybe there's some tests they have to take, but it's not going to be anything that's going to make have real economic impact. So some of it um, is not, some of the provider issues are not financial. But I mean, I I think there is talk about more money. I mean, they got, I I can't keep track because there was the CARA money and there was the um, omnibus money. And then there's some NIH money. It is in the billions over the last two years since 20. There was Cures money, but I guess CARA was part of Cures. There's been a couple of billion dollars and it's, some of it is new money. And some of it is transferring from other mental health programs. I think at the end of the day, there's new, there is more money going to be spent when all these bills go through. When the FDA's uh, you know chief Scott Gottlieb was in front of, um, I guess it was the House earlier this week, I, um, and uh, he was it talking was FDA appropriators. Yeah, I think, yeah. And it, it's a smaller bill for them. The, their their request for money because it's based off of over-the-counter drugs and veterinarian fees as opposed to the bigger user fees. But uh, two of the members on that committee chastised him for not asking for more money for opioids. I thought that was interesting. Um, and, you know, his his uh, drive right now is uh, is a couple of fronts. He wants to help get a drug 
um, I think, uh, help with an alternative, but also he wants training for doctors. He wants those doctors to have to receive specific training before they're prescribing those mandatory training. I right. think is and the then, you know, the, the, the Medicaid debate that we've just been talking about, I mean, that fits into the opi. I mean, one of the big selling points, if you're in a state that does not have Medicaid expansion, Medicaid expansion pays for behavioral health, for mental health, for drug abuse treatment, for substance abuse treatment. That is something that you will hear in Utah and Nevada and, sorry, not Nevada, Utah and Nebraska and Idaho and other states. You'll, I think you will hear that. Um, that's a Democratic talking point. Certainly. When a Republican gets up and says, I'm for doing something about opioids in a non-expansion state, well, that's yeah. an entry point for the Democrat to say, right. I mean, look at, I mean, well, I, Medicaid I, covers four in 10 people that right. are addicted to opioids, I think. I think and, it'll be in the Florida Senate race between yeah. Scott and Nelson. I mean, I think that'll be, you know, Rick Scott's governor. They haven't expanded. And I think, you know, when he starts talking about what he's doing about opioids as a governor, you know, running for Senate, I think, you know, we would hear Bill Nelson say, well, why didn't you expand Medicaid? Because that would pay for these people to get their care. Right. I think that these two political um, trajectories will intersect. I actually heard from some Republican lobbyists when I wrote about Wallen's bills uh, or measures a couple, like a month or so ago, that there's there was this real reticence and aversion among Republicans, especially on energy and commerce, to approach approach it through the Medicaid lens because they realize that for yeah. them, that's well, a politically right. dangerous thing. Right. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, I think that there will be some of the money is already out there and has to get mad through the omnibus and has to get matched up to a purchase. That's the appropriation. And these are the authorization bills. So some of these things will get wedded in the coming weeks as it goes to the floor. And I will have just as much trouble remembering which bill costs. <laughs> yeah, <away>. exactly. <laughs> well, the Senate Finance Committee today, I think, has a hearing on the impact to Medicare and Medicaid. So we should. Um, well, I mean, there turns out to be a lot of older Americans who um, oh, yeah. have, uh, you know, they are the, many of them have been on some of them, there's some issues with getting the treatment, the medication-assisted treatment covered once you hit Medicare age. There are issues of just, you know, people who are have chronic pain and have been taking opioids are reaching Medicare or they're already in Medicare. I mean, it is being, we now, there's evidence, increasing evidence that it's not the right drug for mm -hmm. chronic diseases such as, you know, chronic pain like a backache, but there are people, millions of people taking them and some of them are in Medicare. In the hearing the other day, I don't remember when I heard this actually, but Dr. Gottlieb was saying um, in response to questions about developing a new drug, a new uh, pain reliever that uh, doesn't have the addictive properties. And everyone's going to really say, oh, th we're going to believe that, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> he's like, he's like, well, I would say that, uh, you know, that is something that's kind of difficult to promise. Like he's, he says, we've been there before. We, he's not going to guarantee But there's that. a lot of work going on with NIH <laughs> yeah, and NIH collaborating with the private sector. I mean, obviously, if we could invent a safe new painkiller with no side effects and no addictive properties, it would be a good thing. This, yeah. But, you know, I think that the threshold for proving that people are going to be skeptical, and they should be. I mean, we were told these were safe, and they're not. Well, uh, we're, yes. But I think it's a Important. One thing that I think sometimes gets lost in the debate about the opioid problem, which is a huge public health problem and definitely needs all these responses, is that pain is a real problem. And so, the you know, part of the reason that we have an opioid addiction problem is because there are people who are, you know, susceptible to drug addiction. And part of the reason that we have it is because there are a lot of people who have real suffering and are looking for real treatment for that. And so, while a kind of magic pill that has no side effects, you know, it basically hasn't been developed in practically any form of therapy. Uh, I do think that it's interesting that there's at least some investment in thinking about how are we going to take care of people who do legitimately have pain and need help. And there's been, I think, a quite an interesting debate about some of the actions that the Trump administration has taken to try to 
clamp down on prescribing of opioids for people with chronic pain. So there is this medical consensus that probably those drugs have been widely overprescribed and that there are some people who uh, are diverting drugs that have been prescribed by their doctors, for example, or who are addicts and are kind of shopping around to different doctors to get a lot of prescriptions. But there are criticisms of the Trump administration response, which has been to basically tell doctors, just don't prescribe more than X. Uh, And, you know, the number of people who are in this circumstance, I think, is a little bit unclear. But there, I think, has been some very moving and interesting reporting about what's happened to patients who have pain, who have been doing well on opioids for a long time. And even if that was not the treatment that was ideal for them at the time that they started receiving that treatment, those people are really scared because their doctors are suddenly reluctant to continue prescribing their medicines. They don't have great alternatives for them. And there was a story in Reason Magazine a few months ago that really stuck with me that included stories of several suicides by pain patients after their doctors basically cut them off in response to some of these new guidelines. So this is a really uh, complicated issue. Yeah, there's two competing government messages. One is to the doctors, don't prescribe so much of this stuff. And at the same time, and some states are actually enacting limits, but um, at the same time, the CDC guidelines are for tapering. You know, you're supposed you're supposed to a gradually with skill. The doctor's supposed to know what they're doing, how to taper somebody. But it's also the patient has to be willing to do it. You're not you're supposed to get the patient. The tapering process or the weaning process is the other word you hear is supposed to be done with the patient who's ready. And you're not, and it's tapering implies gradual. You're mm-hmm. not. I mean, the medical, the medically appropriate thing is, you know, it's one thing if somebody's been taking opioids for three days and you don't want to give them the fourth day, but someone has been taking it for ten years and on a large, large dose. I mean, as Margaret said, this is a problem, and the um, primary care workforce doesn't really know how to deal with it. Yeah, I was with a source the other day, actually, um, having breakfast, and they um, talked about the suicides and said, you know. They said there was no data on how many suicides, but I think it's very valid to point out that there are people who really struggle with this. You and I I were both at a panel, I think, the other day when they were discussing this at HCJ. I mean, there there have been some suicides. Suicides are complicated things. There there are two stories. Maybe we can put them in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And again, these are not scientific stories. They're not counting a rise in suicides, but they include some anecdotal accounts of what's happened to some chronic pain patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was one in Reason Magazine from a few months ago, and there was another one in Harper's Magazine just this month. Okay. And Bend, Oregon okay. had a good one, too. I think we're running out of time. I wanted to talk about the VA real quick, but um, I think anybody want to say something really quick about um, the VA confirmation hearing next week for um, Mr. Ronnie Jackson? Well, the big question has Dr. been Ronnie. about, about Dr. where Jackson, he stands yes. on the issue of privatizing, as we know, has been a big fight between mm-hmm. Republicans and Democrats. And apparently he met with Senator Isaacson, Ronnie Jackson, that is, met with Senator Isaacson early this week and said that he um, would not be in favor of those efforts. So how that kind of plays out next week, I'm sure he'll get a lot of questions about it. Can I can I say one quick thing about privatizing the VA? So um, I have been looking into this. And one thing that's important to realize is that there are limited opportunities for the head of the VA to privatize much more than has already been privatized without new legislation. On the margins, there are some options. But really, when you hear this debate about whether he is going to be in favor of privatization or whether Shulkin was sufficiently in favor of privatization, it is actually whether he is going to advocate for bills that Congress would have to pass that would allow for greater privatization of VA. You guys are amazing. Really, you are. All of you (laughs) 
<laughs> so we're going to wrap up, though, um, uh, wrap up things with everybody's extra credits as we do every week. This is one of my favorite parts of this podcast every week. It's essentially where each of us re- recommends a story that we read recently. Don't worry. We'll post all of these links to the stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Uh, Paige, why don't we start with you? Yeah, well, I um, I don't always choose post stories, but I was really struck by this this story by my colleague Carolyn Y. Johnson uh, this week that talks about this uh, blood cancer drug called Imbruvica. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, that typically costs around one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and there was some recent science that suggested that this drug could actually work just as effectively in lower doses for patients that had gotten the initial re- uh, regimen and then could lower their dosage. Uh, and some even some clinical evidence. Um, and it's interesting because Carolyn kind of chronicles the response by uh, by the makers of this drug, which changed the pricing structure essentially to ensure that even patients who uh, stick with the original, like has three pills a day, um, that they would actually have to pay more and those that can go to the lower dosage would be paying just as much. Um, so basically they changed the pricing structure of this pill so that they offer the tablets in four strengths, uh, but each of them have the same flat fr- price of about $400 or triple the original cost of the pill. So I thought it was like a, just a really good look at um, how drug companies, you know, kind of strategize around how to um, you know, maximize their revenues, even as the science changes in terms of the medic, the amount of medication that patients should take. It was a great industry look at how the industry handles kind of changes when doctors were trying to find a way to to lower the price. Um, Margot, what's your uh, extra credit this week? So Eric Budman had this fascinating article in Stat about a new study that found that the old-fashioned way of transporting organs for a transplant, which was like basically put them in a cooler. He compared it to like putting your beers on ice. Um, Actually might not be the best way to preserve organs, that there is now research that for both lungs and particularly for livers, that it seems like it would be better to keep them warm and supported with various uh, chemicals and other (laughs) wonderful bath for your livers. Uh, And I just was fascinated by this because it seems like so important to get this right. You know, organs for transplantation are so precious and so rare. And it is just amazing to me that we, we've been doing it potentially wrong for this long. And it's yeah. like intuitive. Our bodies are warm, right? Right. <laughs> like our, our, organism, our organs are not on ice. So yeah. But I also, really I also feel like it's going to make like for less fun scenes in medical dramas yes. because I don't know. <laughs> Maybe a mini heater. I mean, like, <laughs> in a cooler and get in the helicopter. Yeah. Right. But they'll have to have it in some kind of warmer. <laughs> right. Um, okay. There was a great piece in the Times this weekend. Um, how profiteers lure women in to often unneeded surgery by Matthew Goldstein and Jessica Silver Greenberg. And basically the headline says it all. I mean, these women have these um, mesh implants, which we know there are problems with. There have been problems, there have been lawsuits about this for five or six years now. But there's now this like assembly line in, in, uh, in, in industry to call these women out of the blue, terrify them, <laughs> saying, you've got to get this you know, this pelvic mesh removed immediately. And here's this loan you can get to pay for it. You don't have to pay it back unless you you, uh, win your lawsuit. So it's these financiers, it's the doctors, it's the lawyers. It's really this industry. Some of these women did not need the surgery or they certainly didn't need it in a rush. And some of them are, you know, it's this pell-mell rush to surgery, which is sometimes having, creating other um, damage and side effects. I pulled that story up on my phone. It was it's just a fairly long story. I could not stop reading this. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous. Well, the thing, it's really good. The thing that uh, sort of seems to be motivating the strategy, according to the article, is that Money. The lawyers have realized <laughs> that they can collect larger 
uh, rewards if they win their suit, if someone has had the thing removed right. versus if they even if they're suffering and still have it, they can't get as big of a payout. And so the lawyers see an incentive in trying to get as many of these surgeries as possible so that their class actions include more of these more lucrative customers. And so they're essentially trying to solicit people who may not even have any problems into getting these surgeries. Yeah, it's really it's really uh, an incredible con. It's a great story. And so my extra credit this week is is uh, a little bit about cancer and end-of-life care and um, kind of uh, timely, if you will. Barbara Bush died um, on Tuesday, and uh, The Post had this really uh, kind of sweet, uh, short uh, story. It, it's entitled, One Last Time Barbara Bush Had Already Faced a Death More Painful Than Her Own. And all I could think reading it, um, because her three-year-old daughter, um, Robin, had passed from leukemia, and in the story it uh, describes the decision the Bushes had made to seek more medical treatment. And I, I just couldn't help but think this is a, an interesting commentary on end-of-life care, which is a big issue right now. It's just a, it's a beautiful read, so I recommend that one. So um, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you leave, a, leave us a review. That will help other people find us, too. Also, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me at sjtribble. PW underscore Cunningham. At Sanger Katz. At Joanne Kennan. And we should also say, hi, Julie. Have fun with your corgis. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week. Julie will be back next week. In the meantime, be healthy.